Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. Coming to you today from New York University. Let me hear you make a little noise, NYU. Yeah. All right. The Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with SupChina. And SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original pieces that we feature on our website. Sign up for SupChina Access and you get all that and much more with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers here in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to... China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands and, by some estimates, well over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We are sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo, and this, of course, is Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SubChina, a man of great and unmatched wisdom. Say hello, a wise one. <laughs> I'll call you. <laughs> uh, next to him on his right is Rod Klong, uh, Jeremy's invisible friend and alter ego. And actually, he is the source for many of the colorful quotes on SubChina. Say hello, Rod Klong. Oh, you're, you don't exist? Rod Klong doesn't exist. Well, we'll have to ask Ron Vara then, maybe. <laughs> Perhaps. Ron Vara will, will, will come next time. Uh, today, we're going to try to better understand the situation in Hong Kong through the lens of the law. It was, after all, a proposed amendment to a law, which would have made extradition possible to other parts of greater China, including the mainland, which set off these demonstrations that have lasted now for nearly five months. Appeals to the law allegations of lawlessness from both sides, proposed laws here in the U.S., in fact, one that just cleared the House of Representatives today. Uh, Law clearly plays a very important role in understanding what is happening in Hong Kong. So we are delighted to be joined today by the doyen of American studies of Chinese law, Jerome Cohen. Jerry is a professor of law at NYU Law School and was, until his retirement, at counsel, uh, of counsel at the law firm Paul Weiss. He is the author of many, many books uh, on law in China. And as we heard the last time we interviewed him on this podcast, and I'd encourage you to listen to that one if you haven't heard it, he was involved in many of the historic moments in uh, the American relationship with China. He's been a mentor to countless students, some of whom are in this room, uh, many of whom have gone on to very illustrious careers in law, in academia, uh, and in government, not only here in the United States, but also all across Asia. Jerry Cohen, welcome back to Seneca, and it's wonderful to have you with us. Folks, Jerry Cohen. Sounds like a quiz show. <laughs> yes. Now, for $2, Professor Cohen, um, uh, let's, let's start by looking at the agreement that laid the groundwork for the handover in 1997. I'm talking, of course, about the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984. When it comes to Hong Kong, for a very long time now, in the protests of 2003, uh, 
in the Occupy Central and Umbrella movements of 2014. And of course, in this most recent and serious upheaval, we hear a lot of references to what was agreed to in 1984 and to the basic law, particularly with respect to Article 45 and Article 68, which describe the ultimate aim of having the chief executive and LegCo elected by universal suffrage. How should we understand the relationship between the joint declaration and the basic law? Well, the basic law was supposed to implement uh, the joint declaration. Uh, It came many years later. It came after June 4th, uh, 1989, and that made all the difference. Mm. Uh, I remember in uh, 1983 when the draft of the joint declaration was issued in Hong Kong. My office was in Hong Kong, and a fellow named C.K. Lau, who later became the editor of the South China Post, but was their best reporter, he came to see me and he started the interview by saying, now that we have the joint declaration, all the problems are cleared up. I said, are you serious? Take a look at that document. Do you know words are not self-defining? Look at any constitutional document. Look at any treaty. And you have to say, who will pour the meaning of these words uh, into reality? Who will transmit abstract concepts, often very vague, into concrete performance? And I said, the struggle is just beginning and weak. Today, the struggle continues, and that's, what, 35 years ago? And the the basic law itself was shot through still with all of these vagaries, and these really do continue to to vex us. Uh, There are some in particular, I mean, Articles 45 and 68 that Jeremy just referred to, of course, they talk about... uh, the uh, in accordance with conditions and things like this, which are in, entirely vague. Uh, one of the other ones that has proven to be really problematic is Article Twenty Three of of the the Basic Law. Um, I'm I'm wondering what laws though are are actually binding uh, on Beijing with respect to Hong Kong. What specific promises? were made in the Sino-British Joint Joint Declaration and in your dispassionate assessment, is there a case to be made that significant provisions of the Joint Declaration or of the Basic Law have been broken by the Hong Kong government, the PRC, uh, we all, you know, usually blame the PRC, or or by the UK, by the British? Uh, Isn't, you know, there's so much squishy and highly subjective language in there, it just leaves a lot of room for recrimination. Uh, Where do you come down on this? Who has broken faith? Well, you know, it's a kind of a federal system problem. You have a central government, then you have another jurisdiction at the periphery of the country. Uh, You have an allocation of power uh, between the center and the periphery. Uh, It was fairly carefully negotiated over a long time, And yet the words are hardly, as I said earlier, self-defining. So that comes down to who then has the final voice in interpreting the basic law. Uh, The people of Hong Kong were hoping that their court of final appeal would have the final word in deciding which issues are to be decided by the central government 
and which issues are to be left to the people of Hong Kong. And there is a provision for determination by the Court of Final Appeal, but in the last instance, the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress in Beijing makes the final determination. Now, fairly early after uh, the handover, I met with uh, C.H. Tong at his suggestion at a conference in Shanghai for business people, and we just had breakfast, the two of us. And I said, you know, you have an opportunity to impose a meaning on these vague words that will give the people of Hong Kong some confidence that these words mean something and will be enforced. And I explained to him what it was. The basic law provides for a committee on the basic law composed of 10 people, five from Hong Kong, five from the mainland. And uh, that committee's functions had to be spelled out. Uh, the committee was supposed to give advice to the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress uh, in order to help them understand and apply the basic law. The question is, how is the basic law committee to function? Uh, under colonial arrangements with Hong Kong, if there were serious questions about, you might say, Hong Kong's unwritten constitutional law within the British constitutional system, Legal cases would go to London before the Judicial Committee of uh, the House of Lords, and there would be argument by experts on both sides. And then the Judicial Committee would render a judgment. Hmm. That's the way public law legal arguments should be handled. So the question was, with the basic law arrangements, would something like that be set up, would there be an interpretation that said before the basic law committee gives its advice to the standing committee of the National People's Congress, there would be some public, open, due process consideration giving different sides of the argument a chance to be presented. And I said to C.H. Tong, if you can do that, the people of Hong Kong will have confidence in the question of allocating power between the central government and Hong Kong. And he said, ah, he said, that'll just give people like Martin Lee more opportunity to make trouble. Martin Lee is coming here again uh, next week for a day or so with Jimmy Lai, mm -hmm. uh, publisher of Apple Daily in Hong Kong in Taiwan. Martin is a brilliant lawyer. For decades, he has been a political, legal uh, politician, lawyer, barrister in Hong Kong. And Jimmy Lai is a... <laughs> and Jimmy Lai is a former entrepreneur, businessman, uh, who really gave up his business in China in order to express his views about the dictatorial government uh, in China. And he has been a controversial figure in both Hong Kong uh, and Taiwan. To say the least. Yeah. Now, I was disappointed that C.H. Tung, who is a very nice person and uh, made a very good impression every time he spoke in New York, even though he did not make a good impression on the people of Hong Kong, 
uh, I was disappointed. Despite his Western education and business experience, he had such a disappointing uh, response to my suggestion. Mm. And the result is you have a basic law committee that makes its recommendations with no public hearing, with no opportunity to hear a different point of view, their decision might as well come out of a smoke-filled room. And it goes to the National Committee on uh, the uh, Standing Committee of the National People's Congress. Which might as well be a smoke-filled room. Yes, (laughs) that really is a smoke-filled room. And their decisions come out of nowhere and can prevent or overrule decisions of the Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong that was supposed to have a very important role, like our Supreme Court in Washington, in interpreting the allocation of power under a basic constitutional-type document. So, Jerry, it sounds to me in some ways that the original sin was that the joint declaration was not clear enough. Uh, in what it it intended to achieve, or there was enough uh, ambiguity and vagueness to allow both sides to sign it. Yes, that often is a result of a negotiation, a contract, uh, or uh, a legislative document. They leave the most difficult decisions to the future. And now we're dealing with it in a far, possibly far worse way than if it had been cleared up in the 1980s. Right. I guess it's a question of whether Beijing even feels bound by it anymore. Yeah, that I wanted to ask. Do you, do you think Beijing in any way feels bound by, if not the letter, the spirit of the joint declaration? Or is it, well, as China Central raising, Television uh, said the other day, uh, what did they call it, a historical document of no relevance or something like that? I think Beijing certainly is feels bound by the basic law because it can say the basic law means whatever it feels like. Mm. But is is Beijing bound by the joint declaration? You're raising a highly sensitive recent question of public international law. Because beginning two or three years ago, as the UK became more concerned about the evolving difficulties in Hong Kong, Beijing announced, it's none of your business. Uh, We made our agreement. Now go away. We've put out our basic law. You no longer have anything to say about the joint declaration, a preposterous legal interpretation. What does international law typically say about such an agreement? Well, Here you have an agreement made between two states that was supposed to be a binding agreement for 50 years. It was registered with the United Nations. It's treated as a treaty. And all of a sudden, Beijing announces the joint declaration has lost its meaning. And the UK has no right to protest whatever Beijing does in the light of this contract. Now, who would want to make a contract like that regarding anything? Beijing, though, might argue that it was actually Hong Kong that broke faith first, Uh, when you look at what happened in 2003 or 2002 to 2003, when they pushed to actually uh, give definition to what they're called upon to do by Article 23, which is to pass, you know, that they are compelled to pass a law uh, on treason, on uh, sedition, what else is there, uh, subversion, uh, secession. 
Um, they are supposed to uh, enact such a law to prohibit foreign political organizations or bodies from conducting political activities in the region, to prohibit political organizations or bodies in the region that, from establishing ties with foreign political organizations or bodies. And uh, Hong Kong was unable to do that, right? Uh, there were gigantic protests of up to half a million people in the streets in 2003. Isn't Article 23 quite clear that Hong Kong is obliged to pass such laws? The legislature of Hong Kong at some point is supposed to enact legislation uh, to implement Article 23's concern for security. Uh, They made an effort. The people of Hong Kong resisted, and they had to drop the effort at that time. It may still be on the docket in the future. Again, the basic law wasn't terribly precise, especially in terms of timing. Right, but right. you speak of the spirit of the basic law. The spirit was the people of Hong Kong should enjoy a high degree of autonomy and that there should be universal suffrage. But what is universal suffrage? Does it mean everybody can vote, but everybody has a voice in choosing the candidates they vote for? Or are you told you can only vote for candidates A and B, and everybody can vote for them, even though a majority of people don't want candidates A and B? That's been the guts of the problem now with respect to the right to elect freely the chief executive of Hong Kong. And we have this phony artificial system that has been uh, modified slightly over the years uh, that doesn't satisfy of the people of Hong Kong. So, you know, it's now 22 years since the basic law uh, has come into effect. People are looking to 2047, and that will be the end of the 50-year period. And now they're beginning to think, are we ever going to have universal suffrage of a genuine nature where we can participate in who will the candidates be? as well as freedom of voting, it doesn't look it. It looks like Beijing year after year finds one excuse after another. And can you wait another 22 years so that the last eight years they might be able to vote for the chief executive? And what will happen then after eight years? Will Hong Kong just be governed like Shanghai or Guangzhou or Beijing? So this is what's in people's mind. People the ages of most of you in this room are asking, 25 years from now, what kind of a life are we going to have? What kind of a government are we going to live under? That's why so many of the young people are fighting so hard, fighting harder than they did in 2003 or even 2014 when you had the Occupy, the Umbrella Movement. In Hong Kong, this now there's a degree of intensity, almost a degree of ferocity, on the part of the student protesters who have become fighters. That was not anticipated. Now, of course, we don't know how long it will last, but I haven't seen street action like this uh, since the Cultural Revolution, when you had different Red Guard units fighting each other. Now they have higher technology. I don't think they had gas masks in 1967, 68. 
<coughs> and no lasers. Um, Jerry, let's turn to the thing that really started it all this year, the, the extradition bill. Um, what is your understanding of how Carrie Lam came to propose the bill? Why she met such opposition to it? And what could she have done instead to make extradition possible in that case or generally without, um, you know, turning the Getting city people into, into the streets, a yeah. <laughs> eight million protest zone? Uh, I wrote a piece in the South China Morning Post in May to try to explain what was at stake. You see, what's at stake is nobody who knows about the PRC legal system wants to be exposed to it. There isn't one common law country that has made an extradition treaty with China. Australia tried. They signed an agreement, but the parliament rejected it. No common law country wants to have an extradition agreement with China in the current circumstances of the Chinese legal system. Hong Kong is not independent. Hong Kong is part of China. And even Hong Kong, 22 years after returning to the motherland, does not have an agreement for sending people forcibly to the mainland for a criminal trial because Hong Kong's legal tradition is that of the common law. And what Beijing passes for a criminal justice legal system in no way meets the traditional standards of the common law, and it doesn't meet international human rights standards. That's why Hong Kong has never, under the colonial situation, under the post-colonial situation, there's no agreement. Now, the pressure has been rising. Beijing increasingly wants to get its hands on people in Hong Kong. And not only Chinese who are in Hong Kong, but anybody who not only lives in Hong Kong, but also who passes through Hong Kong just for a day or so, if they can grab you at the airport. And they want to get at people, especially who are ethnically Chinese, but have given up Chinese citizenship. And they may have a British passport. They may have a Swedish passport. Uh, they have many foreign passports. Some people hold many foreign passports. And under Chinese law, if you acquire, if you acquire uh, foreign nationality, you lose your PRC citizenship right. automatically. That's the general rule. Hong Kong has some special wrinkles. But now what has happened before extradition is there are people in Hong Kong whose behavior has been profoundly offensive to the PRC. There are those five book publishers, one of whom was actually kidnapped from Hong Kong. And then there was the Xiao Jianhua case. Mm -hmm. Some of you know Xiao Jianhua was a billionaire, one of the richest people to come out of the last 20, 30 years of China's phenomenal economic progress. He didn't want to go back to the mainland. He thought Hong Kong was secure. He bought an entire floor of the new Four Seasons Hotel in Hong Kong. He's a strange person, but very successful. 
he had at least eight female bodyguards. <laughs> now, why he relied on female bodyguards, I don't know, and whether today he rues the day. But on New Year's Eve, Chinese New Year's Eve, January 2017, he was in his floor of the hotel with his bodyguards. His wife was in a room down the hall, and a lot of people with no uniforms and no legal authority, a lot of men came to the hotel, and they injected him with something and they took him out of the hotel in a wheelchair, photographed by the lobby cameras. He's in a bathrobe. He's out cold. And they speared him away. The next day, having discovered they forgot his passport, they came back and picked up his passport. <laughs> so they could make it stamped and look like he left Hong Kong legally. And he turned up in China. Now, that upset a lot of people. It's one thing for a hapless publisher to get kidnapped in Hong Kong, but to kidnap one of the richest men in China, it's a frightening thing to everybody. Mm. And it's not something Beijing wants to go on doing because they get a bad press. So what do they want? They want a legal way to get people they don't like out of Hong Kong and into their clutches. And that's called extradition. Now, in Hong Kong, they don't technically use the word extradition because extradition is an international legal term. Right. They use the term rendition, similar word that the CIA uses <laughs> when we ship somebody off to some dictatorship like Egypt, etc. does sound much more sinister, doesn't yes. it? <laughs> yeah. So it, governments get a bad press when they resort to kidnapping. If they can use extradition, rendition, it's much better. So this is the origin. Now, Carrie Lamb knew this was not going to be an attractive thing. They've never been able to do it for 22 years, but she tried to fog this one by. She tried in two ways, to secretly to move the thing through LegCo without adequately publicizing it normally the way you do when you post a bill. But she also tried to divert the focus away from China. She said there was this murder case in Taiwan where a Hong Kong man and his fiancée went to Taiwan. He allegedly killed her. She was pregnant. He came back to Taiwan, and they said, we must solve this case. In order to solve this case, we must now finally have an extradition bill. And they made it seem like they weren't worrying about China at all. It was a complete fraud on the public, but the public caught what, on. What makes you say that? Pardon? What makes you say that it was a fraud? I mean, why, how, how are we... Because so, they were so. deceiving the public. They tried to uh, put this bill across without the usual uh, legal procedures on the, uh, according to the usual schedule. And then they said the reason for it is we must solve this Taiwan case. They could have solved the Taiwan case on a... Ad hoc basis through a negotiation. Right. That's Taiwan government even opposed the extradition bill that was supposedly put in for its benefit, uh, etc. So they could help solve this murder case involving Taiwan. It's nonsense. And the people in Hong Kong, Hong Kong has wonderful lawyers. These lawyers are just as good as any. 
And there are people not only like Martin Lee, but younger ones, etc. the whole bar association, they were outraged by this because they saw for what it was. It's an attempt to solve a problem for 22 years they had been unable to solve in the government. And to make it worse, the legal provisions for extradition were inadequate. Let me tell you what extradition rendition in this case would involve. All Beijing would have to do is say a request. They could accuse you or you or me and say, you are suspected of corruption. You are suspected of bribery. And put in an affidavit by somebody who say, entirely falsely perhaps, that you were engaged in corruption. That's all they have to do under this arrangement. They present it to the Hong Kong courts. Hong Kong has a real legal system. I criticize it in some ways. It's unduly slow, etc. Doesn't give enough protection to individuals. They treat suspected criminals a little more harshly than I think they should, but it's a real legal system. So the first thing the Hong Kong government would do is, oh, China wants to uh, have you sent to China. We'll detain you. We'll lock you up. And then during the period you're locked up, we'll start the process for having a court hearing. That court hearing could take weeks. There will be arguments. It could take time. Maybe you'll get bail. So you'll only spend maybe five days in jail instead of five months waiting for the hearing. Look at the, what, how slow the extradition process is uh, in Canada or in Sweden, or in other places where China is popping up in various ways as relevant. What is a more typical standard of, of evidence for a rendition or for an extradition, rather than just an affidavit of suspicion? The court does not examine the adequacy of the evidence beyond a superficial way. Uh, it can be just like probable cause for an arrest. They just look, and they don't have a hearing. They don't. I mean, hit. between two other jurisdictions, where you know you you think that the extradition agreement is more sensible, what would the the standard of evidence be? If, for example, the United States, with one of its extradition treaty partners, wanted to extradite somebody, what would they need to present to that? Jurisdiction? You know, we don't have to ask a hypothetical question. We have to look at what's going on in Vancouver. Right. The U.S. is trying to extradite the Huawei, the Huawei uh, CFO, Mwanjo, yeah. the daughter of the owner, Mr. Ren of uh, Huawei, and the Canadians are serious lawyers. They have serious due process of law, but it takes forever. Now, fortunately, uh, the uh, accused, the suspect is a very wealthy woman. She has a huge houses in Vancouver and under very great restraints, she wears various electronic gadgets, but she's free on bail. But look how many months she's been waiting. Mm -hmm. This could go on for over a year. Extradition to have a hearing just to determine whether she should be extradited to the United States it's a terrible imposition on even her freedom, even though she lives a high life and is free to go around Vancouver to 11 o'clock at night, uh, etc. But most people in Hong Kong, if you're subjected to an extradition process, you're going to be severely uh, hindered, even if you get bail. And you may not get bail. It may take weeks to you get bail. But let's deal with the up 
the real problem. The real problem is what if the Hong Kong court says, oh, these papers are in order. This is a proper request under our arrangement uh, with the PRC, and they send you to the PRC for trial. Then you're really in trouble. The first thing they do is they detain you, and they can detain you for months, and it can be incommunicado. It can be without access to a lawyer, family, friends, and you may be there for a long time, subjected right. to torture, uh, brainwashing, coerced confession. Uh, this is the reality of criminal justice in the PRC, depending on what you're prosecuted for, etc. So that's what people fear. Why in the world would you want to subject yourself, even if you had the best extradition rendition agreement in the world as far as the Hong Kong aspects of the process, until the PRC develops a credible, fair administration of justice, nobody would want to go there. Let's stay with the topic of people who have been detained or imprisoned and talk about some of the uh, leaders of the 2014 uh, Occupy Central and uh, uh, the, the uh, Umbrella Movement, uh, leaders of groups like Demosisto uh, or, or of Occupy Scholarism. They were arrested and imprisoned. Uh, this, I think, has to be in the minds of many of the protesters who are on the streets this year. It's clear that this was part of the reason that they've made their, their protests notionally leaderless, so that there aren't leaders that can be arrested. Do you think that those arrested this year uh, face very different treatment uh, by Hong Kong's legal system than five years ago? I think the Hong Kong courts have been under huge pressure trying to deal fairly and not too provocatively with the people who were detained and prosecuted in 2014, even if the case arose two or three years later. Right. Joshua Wong, although he's had to spend time in jail, has been treated better than the people who are locked up now. Uh, and the sentences that are possible now are going to be greater. Right. People can get sentenced to 10 years now. These are students, etc. People who don't wear a gas mask can get at least, who, who do wear a gas mask despite the rules now, uh, can get a one-year sentence. And yet, in order to show their disagreement and opposition and protest, many people are taking those chances. And yet, they've arrested a huge number of people, but a small number relative to the number of protesters. Right, I, right, right. I think the protesters have been hoping they can't lock up 100,000 people. They can lock up 1,500 people, maybe. I think the PRC uh, is trying to rely on a strategy of locking up key protesters now. Uh, and uh, they're hoping to combine the legal process with the use of gangsters and thugs to beat people up and threaten people. This is the old Chiang Kai-shek and then Communist China Shanghai routine where the government uses gangsters, mafia uh, people, uh, in order to intimidate people. It's much less visible than bringing in the army uh, across the border uh, from Shenzhen. These may, are made to look like individual beatings, isolated things, but there's now, it's quite clear 
that in many instances there is a systematic beating of many people in a serious way that could threaten their lives. I think it's the combination of legal prosecution, uh, trying to separate the violent protesters from the others, and trying to use gangsters to supplement this by hitting people who can be identified, whether you're a labor union person uh, or whether you're another kind of organizer. And I think they're relying, Beijing is now relying on exhaustion, attrition. Mm -hmm. It worked in 2014. It's much harder now because to everyone's amazement, much of the public, although it does not condone violence, refuses to criticize those who engage in violence. There's much greater sympathy uh, for what's going on. Now, how long that will last because life becomes very inconvenient, as it did under the Umbrella Movement in 2014. But we'll see. There's a war of attrition now, and many techniques are being used, legal and illegal, uh, in an attempt to bring it to a close. Let's talk about the legal profession in Hong Kong. Uh, in recent years, I believe we have seen more and more uh, judges and other court officials who are, broadly speaking, more sympathetic to Beijing uh, than perhaps some of their predecessors. Is this accurate, do you think? And if it is, has it had a noticeable effect on the legal system in Hong Kong? The legal system in Hong Kong embraces the legal solicitors who are business lawyers. It embraces the barristers who are criminal and litigation lawyers. They go to court. Uh, the legal system includes government lawyers who work for the Department of Justice in Hong Kong. And the legal system includes the judges. judges. And the judges, look, judges want to get promoted Uh, English judges traditionally have been treated well, colonial judges very well, and it continues under the post-colonial regime. Being a judge in Hong Kong is a good thing. And these people are well-educated, and they're human beings. So far, I can't fault them. They may not strive the way they did five years ago to give sympathetic treatment to some of these people. But I don't think we can say there's any significant evidence that the judges are under political influence, even though they're career people and they have the similar uh, motivations to career judges everywhere, even That's in our fair. federal system. But where you really see the legal profession wilting under Beijing's pressure is in the Secretary of Justice's office. Hmm. I used to be a prosecutor in Washington. Prosecutors in every system have discretion. You can decide, I don't want to bring this case. The evidence is unclear. Or even though the evidence is unclear, it would have a bad effect on the public Uh, or it makes me uncomfortable personally because I think it's unattractive to put somebody away for whatever's involved in this case. In Hong Kong now, the Secretary of Justice exercises discretion almost uniformly in favor of what Carrie Lam's government and Beijing would want. They are attack dogs, hmm. even though their staff Many of the lawyers on their staff don't agree. 
there's tension between the boss, who's the secretary for justice, I, I know Teresa Jung, who's the current one, etc., and those people, the secretaries for justice we've had, uh, are under enormous pressure, and they want to get something out of their lives too professionally. In the past, secretaries for justice have got higher positions in the Hong Kong government, but the professional lawyers for them are in disagreement, and many of them are feel very uncomfortable because now you have a much more aggressive prosecution. So if you have a choice between prosecuting somebody for an offense, the maximum penalty for which is one year and 10 years, and now they're choosing 10 years instead of one year, it's legal. But, it's, you know, we have the same problem in the United States. We often have tension between the attorney general's office in Washington and the U.S. attorney in New York. There are disagreements there, and you have the same problems within state government. Well, Hong Kong is not devoid of these problems. No, indeed. And we've seen actually uh, earlier this summer uh, the professional association for all these the solicitors and the, the, the barristers that we're talking about actually take to the streets in silent protest. What does that tell us about how things have changed in the legal profession between 2014 and 2019? Well, I think there's no doubt that the government, not only in its recent regulations like adopting emergency rules, but also in the exercise of discretion, whether to prosecute for what offense someone should be prosecuted, whether to grant bail is a judicial question, but the government can oppose the argument defense lawyers make to let someone out on bail. In every way now, I think the Hong Kong government is taking a much harder line, even while saying the judicial system, the courts, remain independent. Um, from talking to your colleagues in the legal profession in Hong Kong, um, what is your sense of how they are seeing uh, one country, two systems? Will it even make it to 2047? Um, do people think that even a, a semblance of one country, two systems might actually still be in place in a couple of decades? Well, they've had one country, two systems. They've carried on reasonably well, despite occasional 2003, 2014. And now this needn't have become a huge question of revolution almost that it's become. It could have been handled in a very different way last April and May, uh, etc. I think most Certainly business lawyers are very upset about this, but they think the system can be restored and continue. I think the barristers, though, they're usually more upset uh, because they're more overtly preoccupied with due process of law and criminal justice, etc. cetera. Uh, I don't think uh, most people uh, in the legal profession have given up on one country, two system, but they're waiting for leadership leadership to come from somewhere. What I can't understand is if you don't have a strong, enlightened leader in the Communist Party, which you have had on certain occasions in China, if Zhu Rongji were prime minister or president today, you could expect a different arrangement. He was a bold, enlightened, energetic person. Uh, if uh, you had Hu Yaobang, who was forced out in 87 as the party leader, or Zhao Ziyang before they locked him up uh, in uh, 89, 
you would have a leadership possibility in Beijing for coming forth and taking hold. Deng Xiaoping showed a flexibility in dealing with Hong Kong or Japan and the Senkakus that the current leader in China doesn't show. He's always, we will never give an inch, etc. Or if you had a better leadership in Hong Kong, but Hong Kong leadership since 1997, the handover has not usually been outstanding. And perhaps that's because the people haven't been free to select any of their good candidates. But I'm not talking only about people in the party in Beijing or people in the government in Hong Kong. Where is the Hong Kong non-governmental leadership? Hong Kong has many wonderful, enlightened people, and they're like deer in the headlights now. They're all stunned. I thought they would come forward with a citizens' commission that would knock heads together and put pressure on the Hong Kong government in Beijing and say, this is our community. This is our life. How can we just sit there and do nothing? How can we be paralyzed and let this thing go on? And it isn't happening And I try to ask my friends in Hong Kong, why not? And the best answer I get is people think it would be hopeless for citizens to try to take initiative and band together. And I think this is a huge failure uh, on the part of the leaders in the community in Hong Kong. And you can't wait for these uh, uh, student rebels Uh, Because, as has been pointed out, there is no significant unified leadership now. It's dispersed. So you've got to have leaders in the community who can come forward and win the confidence of those students who are gallantly fighting what will ultimately be a hopeless cause, at least in the immediate future. But where are the people? And you just don't see it happening in Hong Kong. Indeed. While we ponder that question, let's take a quick break. Uh, Jerry, you can have a little bit of water. Uh, I need to pay some bills. If you're looking for a study abroad program that will take your Chinese language skills to the next level, study abroad with CET. CET Academic Programs, which began in Beijing in 1982, has trained a generation of China watchers and scholars, including folks like Evan Osnos of The New Yorker and Jessica Beinecke of Oh My God, May You. And many others, our own Seneca contributor David Moser, served as academic director for CET Beijing for many years and still advises on CET programs. With programs for college, high school, and gap year students in seven cities, CET offers options for every student and language level. Intern in Shanghai or Taipei, study intensive Chinese language in Beijing, in Harbin or in Kunming, or spend a gap year in Beijing. You can even send your high schooler to Shanghai for the summer or on a semester-long program to Dali in Yunnan. Spring, summer, and fall 2020 programs are now accepting applications. For more information, visit cetacademicprograms.com slash Seneca. That's cetacademicprograms.com slash Seneca. And now, back to the show. That was the commercial? That was the commercial. <laughs> What do you think pays for this food, Jerry? <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, I mean, we... Have... I kept waiting for the question you were going to ask me. <laughs> oh, no, no, we were just taking a break. Here's the question I'm going to ask you. Uh, the, so the system of functional constituencies, whereby a certain number of LegCo seats are, are apportioned to representatives of different industry sectors, of different societal sectors, uh, it sure doesn't seem to be very functional these days. 
there, uh, I mean, I read that in 2012, for example, the majority of, of, of seats, actually, people ran unopposed for these, for these functional constituency seats. And for one of them, which was, I think, was fishing and agriculture, that functional constituency only had 123 people turn out to vote at all. Uh, it's kind of a pathetic situation. What do lawyers as a professional association think of this proposal that's now uh, put, being put forward to abolish the whole functional constituencies regime entirely? Well, I don't think the functional uh, constituencies, which have formed at least half of the LegCo right. representation, uh, have proved to be as valuable as they had hoped, because uh, you have to ask, how are these people chosen within their regular constituency, whether it's the accountants or the legal profession, etc. But I can accept that functional constituency. If the other people who were elected validly to LegCo were not, for various excuses, ousted from their post. Mm. Now, they overplayed their hand. I think some of the young people who were elected to LegCo did some silly things that gave the government an opportunity they never should have done. You mean using but, that sort of insulting language when taking the pledge and things like that? Yes, and uh, trying to make fun of the oath, etc. And of course, the government leapt upon that and saw it as an excuse to limit further uh, the possibilities for having a democratically controlled LegCo. Uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, isn't that uh, the good guys have played every card correctly, uh, and yet they're under various pressures, and of course the democratic groups in Hong Kong have been split in how to regard the question of how hard to fight for true universal suffrage. Do you take half a loaf as they rejected a few years ago? and hold out for a true solution? Or do you say we should have taken what they offered us and then we'll work further uh, to get experience with the electoral system? So there is a lack of unity that's quite natural among the democratic groups in Hong Kong. Let's come back to this side of the Pacific. Um, what do you think about the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act that was passed in the House of Representatives? Um, it's today. something it's today, today right. yeah. Um, it's something that uh, some of the more vocal activists like uh, Denise uh, Ho, Nathan Law, and Joshua Wong have advocated for. Uh, Susan Thornton, the former Acting Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia Pacific, who we've had on the show, uh, has come out very strongly against it, suggesting that it would actually hurt the people it should help and plays into Beijing's hands. I should perhaps note, if you're not familiar with her, that Susan Thornton is perceived as rather dovish on China, sure. particularly in the current climate. So... Is this actually going to help the people of Hong Kong, or is this just grandstanding uh, Americans making a fuss? Well, in, it's a little Washington? of both. Uh, I'm in favor of the law. It's controversial, but I think, uh, again, it's not necessarily applied in a certain way. Uh, what worries people, it does contain the so-called nuclear option, meaning it would give 
uh, the ability to the United States gov- government to take away Hong Kong's special trade status. And uh, many people think that would be throwing out the baby with the bath. But the threat to do that uh, is uh, very, very uh, important. You see the background of this before China uh, could enter the WTO. Every year, the Congress had the opportunity to decide, should the United States continue to give the Chinese government most favored nation treatment, give them equal access with other countries to the American market? And there were many people who would say, as long as they deprive their people of human rights, we shouldn't do it. And every year, there would be a vote. And before the vote, the Chinese government would let some human rights activists out of jail. Then there would be a vote, and then China would lock up some more people, sometimes the same people. But at least it was some sanction that limited the worst abuses in China of human rights. Then the question came up, should China come into the WTO? I was very strongly for it, even though I was highly critical of human rights violations in China. In order to get in the WTO, China needed the approval of the U.S. Congress, and the Congress had to give up its annual approval of whether China should have access to the American market. And we did that. And getting into the WTO proved to be an enormous benefit for China and the Chinese people. It's been one of the great spurs to the huge modernization of Chinese economy and the rise of the Chinese people's standard of living that has had some of you, uh, the beneficiaries, uh, in order uh, to get here. I thought on balance it was worth it. But Congress since then has had no remotely adequate sanction to react to any violations in China, including the horrific uh, violations taking place in Xinjiang and Tibet, uh, for example. Now, this bill is a reflection of that frustration many people have. They want to use this bill to say, if the PRC engages in further repression in Hong Kong, They will take away the special status that Hong Kong has enjoyed as an independent member of the uh, WTO, and that was allowed by the uh, joint declaration that Hong Kong not only was allowed its independent trade status, but Hong Kong also is to enjoy the benefits of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which Beijing has signed but never approved never ratified. So Hong Kong is supposed to have this special protection. Now, the economic privilege that Hong Kong has can be taken away. It would certainly harm Beijing's economy. It would make it harmful to the Chinese people's economy. It would be harmful to the people in Hong Kong. So that's why it's called the nuclear option. Do you exercise it? You kill people in order to help them? Nobody wants to do that. And yet the threat of the sanction, year after year, it has to be certified if this act passed. Every year, Congress will have to say, 
is the situation in Hong Kong so bad in repression that we'll resort to this? But in the meantime, there are other aspects of the law that are worth doing, but we live by symbols. And I think the enactment of this act will ease the sense of frustration in the United States. We can't really help the people of Hong Kong. We can't promise them, as some people would love, that we're going to come in and intervene. We're not going to use force against China. We don't want a repeat of the Hungarian Revolution of 56, where the U.S. encouraged revolution in Hungary, and then when the chips were down, we didn't do anything, and the people were utterly repressed. Same thing happened in Prague in 68. And so we have to be very careful. And yet we can't sit here under the kinds of political pressures we have and do nothing. So the problem is, what can we do? I see it as having a lot of parallels to the kind of um, seemingly wanton destruction that we're seeing in Hong Kong itself. It's cathartic. It draws attention to the issue. But ultimately, it doesn't really help the situation. Look, uh, we are not capable of resolving this situation, the United States, but we're not capable of doing nothing. Can we sit by and be silent? At least we should speak up. And uh, world opinion is important. And even though Beijing will always prefer the security of the Communist Party to a benefit of a nice world opinion, Beijing cares a lot about world opinion. And uh, we think we have to do something at least to increase the pressure that might save the people of Hong Kong from a fate worse than they're now experiencing. So there are no satisfactory solutions here. Mm. But the people in Congress, many of them, Republicans as well as Democrats, feel they can satisfy their constituents to some extent. It may be hollow, but there is something here. And I I prefer dealing with symbols uh, that uh, uh, are in favor of uh, the protesters in Hong Kong rather than those like President Trump on alternate days. He's praising Xi Jinping and letting the people in Hong Kong down. Then occasionally he shows sympathy for them. I think we have to consistently act in ways that show our support for democracy in Hong Kong. I was amazed that that fellow who is the NBA, Houston Rockets general manager, uh, but uh, you see the chaos that has created. We all have to come to grips with this, or we have to sit back and look the other way and later ask ourselves, should we have kept silent or should we speak out? So these are not simple questions. Indeed not. Let me ask you a question about uh, so about the five demands, and two of them specifically. We're all familiar with the, the five demands that the Hong Kong protesters have, have now uh, sort of uh, put forward for, for quite some time, for many weeks now during the protest. Two, one of them calls for a blanket amnesty uh, on all participants in, in the demonstrations who have been uh, arrested or imprisoned or charged. Another calls for a an independent investigation into police violence. I'm wondering whether this second one, uh, in independent investigation, whether a possible compromise position might be a an independent inquiry into both police violence and to violence perpetrated by some of the protesters. Very fine people on both sides. No, that's I'm not <laughs> suggesting equivalence, but I mean, is this is this something that you see? 
Uh, I'm all in favor of an independent investigation. I'm not against an investigation that would include violence, whatever the source of the violence. Question, what is an independent investigation? A similar problem has arisen in Taiwan from time to time. My former student, former President Ma ying and I had a disagreement some years ago when they were going to prosecute Chen Shui-bian, mm. his predecessor as president. And I thought the prosecution was behaving disgracefully in the process of prosecuting him. And I said there should be an independent investigation. And Ma said, we don't need that because we have an organization, an institution called the Control Yuan. And the control again is a government agency that is designed to investigate questions of government misbehavior. But the control again is controlled. <laughs> the control again is not an independent organization. It is a political one. I'm in favor in Hong Kong of not having a government-sponsored so-called independent investigation because they show no sign of creating independent conditions. And they don't want to endow that organization with the power to subpoena people, with the power to get evidence and punish people who refuse to cooperate. This is what's taking place in Washington today. In what circumstances can the Congress get the executive branch to come forth and with information? Do you have the power to enforce a subpoena and send people to jail? I want an independent investigation in Hong Kong of people who are truly independent. And I see no sign of that. The government wouldn't seem to tolerate, and they certainly aren't going to endow it with right. the power to collect evidence and use subpoena, etc. But I'm for an independent investigation, but I don't see it happening. Blanket amnesty is unrealistic. Right. I think you can't say that no matter how badly people have behaved, they should get amnesty. Gary, if you could sit down with some of the leaders of this leaderless movement, um, notionally leaderless, what advice would you give to them right now? I would urge them to put all their energy into getting peaceful demonstrators back into the street. I wondered what was going to happen on October 1st, the 70th anniversary of the establishment of the PRC. Not long before... They put two million peaceful protesters in the street. That was awesome. Since then, the emphasis has shifted to violence. And I think that is divisive. I think it's damaging. I would get all these violent protesters now to try to get as many peaceful people in the street. Although it's said that peaceful demonstrations in Hong Kong are not effective. Therefore, we have to turn to violence. If you get two million people out there again, or three million people, I think that would have an amazing impact, and it would demonstrate the huge, broad community support. What's happening here is the resort to violence uh, is sharpening the problems. It's making a solution less likely than ever and ultimately, I think these people will be crushed. A lot of good students will lose their, their careers. Some will be harmed. Death will certainly start occurring soon. 
uh, it's not going to be a happy ending, even if thugs can replace the People's Liberation Army and end up subduing people. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to see more unity come out of this uh, instead of disunity. But again, where are the leaders? And well, on the other hand, I look at American cities in 1968, cities on fire, uh, two major political assassinations. Who would have thought that, that, there, that people would have grown out of it? We ignore, I think, the biological processes involved here. People who were burning their bras and their draft cards in 1972 were putting on white polyester disco clothes in 1976 and snorting cocaine. Then by 1980, they were voting for Ronald Reagan, for Christ's sakes. Uh, you know, there, there, there is change. You know some very odd people, Kaiser. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about family members. <laughs> I do know some odd people, that's true. And you're one of them, Jen. Uh, no, I, and, and let's, let's turn this question around. If you had Carrie Lamb's ear for five minutes, what would you tell her at this juncture? Besides step down. <laughs> you see, that's one demand that has disappeared. People used to argue, people used to argue, we must have Carrie Lamb step down. You don't hear that anymore. I think they realize it doesn't matter who the Hong Kong leader is since Hong Kong government isn't running the show. Right. But I would still urge Carrie Lam, if she appeared tonight, resign. And if she could, resign and tell the truth. But uh, I think that's more from people who've known her for years. That's more than we can expect. Jerry Cohen, it has been such an incredible pleasure to have you here this evening. Uh, before we wrap up, let's move on to recommendations. First, I want to remind listeners very quickly that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you are like what we're doing, what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in our network, Sign up for SubChina Access. That's what you do to support us. You get free admissions to live shows like this one. More importantly, you get the amazing newsletter that Jeremy and his team, see Lucas and Javian here in the audience today. They put together, it's an amazing product. Please sign up. On to recommendations. Uh, Jeremy, it is our tradition that you should begin. What do you have for us? Okay, I'm, I'm going to make sure that we don't change the depressing tone of, of the conversation oh, from Thank Jerry's you. last <laughs> <laughs> remarks. There's a, um, a, a series of oral histories called Weather Reports, Voices from Xinjiang. Um, a guy, a writer named Ben Monks, uh, has been going to Kazakhstan and interviewing, taping the, the interviews of uh, mostly Kazakh refugees from China, some of whom escaped uh, internment camps or got out and you know, have got families stuck in there. And it's just, uh, I mean, it's depressing, but it, it, it's a very human rendering of the story in Xinjiang, which is very difficult to get human uh, detail about it because we know so little uh, about it. Um, so it's not pleasant reading, but it's it's and that's worth still while online. Read. It's online, yeah. Okay, it's uh, some magazine called The Believer. I don't know what they believe in, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the the article name is Weather Reports: okay. Voices from Xinjiang, and we'll post the link, of course. All right. Could I say a word about Xinjiang? Absolutely, Please. and you can make that your recommendation. Uh, if you I like. had hoped we would give adequate time to that. That is the single most violation of international human rights that we have learned about. We know a huge amount about it. The world is gradually coming to be more aware of it. And yet it's unbelievable that a government, any government, would engage today in the light of 
the Hitlerian experience, the Mussolini, the Stalin experience, and this kind of behavior. This is not the 1930s. This is not the 1940s. And for the Chinese government to try to get away with this uh, every day, trying to change Muslims into Han people, it reminds me of the effort to try to change gay people into heterosexual people. There, this is really genocide. You don't have to kill people to engage in genocide. According to the UN Convention, you only have to create conditions that exterminate their culture, their language, their history, their dress, their appearance. And this is a shocking thing. And I sympathize with what's going on in Hong Kong. It is the battleground uh, between freedom and its opposite. But we can't ignore what's taking place in Xinjiang and the even more successful repression uh, in Tibet. And this is, this is unbelievable by anybody who learns what's going on in Xinjiang. Would you want to point us to the work of one scholar who's been on top of this issue? Well, there's several. Uh, There's a fellow in uh, Washington at Georgetown. Jim Uh, Millward, yes. Pardon? James Millward. That's right. right. There's a man in Australia, James Liebold, who is uh, very able. Uh, There's this fellow in Germany who just testified in Washington, Adrian Zenz. Uh, There are a variety, but only a handful of people who are following in great detail. But if you're interested in the Chinese legal system, you have to understand Xinjiang is a showpiece for what's wrong with Chinese justice now. Most of the people who are locked up, whether it's a million or a million and a half, are not locked up according to any national government law. They are locked up under a variety of local police regulations that are not made public. They're beginning to prosecute more people using the formal criminal process instead of the administrative police process. In 2013, China rightfully made a big deal about the abolition of re-education through labor, Laodong Jiaoyang, but it was only abolished in name. And now even the word re-education through labor is reappearing in the Xinjiang context. Most people are locked up through arbitrary detention, not through any formal national law. And they're beginning because they need to send more people to prisons elsewhere in the country. They're beginning to condemn more people using the formal process. But the formal process gives no protection. You never hear of any lawyer now defending people. Uh, You don't have any judgments announced. What's taking place now is based on illegal confinement, coerced confessions, if there are indeed confessions, uh, certainly torture if you use the UN convention of what torture is, not just physical, but mental, psychological, etc. And the broader violations, China has ratified not the civil and political rights convention, but the international covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights. And yet China now every day is violating those rights. And the leadership in China tries to act 
like China has never signed any of these. China has never ratified the Convention Against Torture. They make speeches about nobody can restrain China's judicial sovereignty, not even the Chinese government freely exercising its sovereignty to commit itself to protecting human rights. What's going on in China today? And most people in China don't even have an awareness of it. They're told everybody in Xinjiang is a terrorist and we have to do this. It's really using a blunderbuss to kill a flea and it's creating more and more terrorism, more and more adverse reaction. So this is, uh, I'm glad we could get a few words in on that. Yeah. <laughs> That's very, very important. It is. Uh, I mean, my, my, my uh, recommendation's a little tepid, but uh, it, it's, to talking about a book about proponents of genocide here in the United States, uh, I, I suppose. It's a, a book called Antisocial, uh, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation by the very talented New Yorker writer Andrew Morantz. Uh, it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. I just finished it today. Uh, the, the sheer extent of his reporting, the dedication that he shows in spending countless hours with these truly odious people on in the so-called alt-right uh, or the alt-light, these, these crypto-Nazis or straight-up Nazis, uh, the unblinking look at how really free speech absolutism and the abdication of responsibility by so many of our technology platforms, Facebook and Twitter uh, and YouTube, how they have just contributed to the spread of this stuff uh, and it's, it just goes beyond the election of that odious racist in the White House. It's, it's beyond that. It's, uh, it makes for some very disturbing uh, but very important reading. So I highly recommend that book. Once again, Jerry Cohen, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. So wonderful to have you. Okay, folks, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And be sure to check out all the other shows in our network. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.